Good morning. The scripture reading for today is Genesis twelve ten through 20. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful to behold, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared on your account. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, men servants, maid servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and be gone. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him on the way with his wife and all that he had. This is the word of the Lord. You know, the last time we left Abram, God had made a set of extraordinary promises to this man. He had plucked him out of the Ur of the Chaldeans. This is a man who was a pagan, not worshiping God, not knowing God. And God made, by his grace, an amazing set of promises to Abram. He said, Abram, I'm going to bless you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a great nation from you. I'm going to give you this land And ultimately, I'm going to bless the whole world through you, through your line and the coming Messiah. It was an extraordinary set of promises. And as we saw last week, Abraham, or Abram by this point, responds in extraordinary faith. As John Calvin says, he obeys, and I love this word, the bare word of God. The naked word of God. When there's nothing else to go on, Abram leans upon that and he leaves home and country and goes where God tells him. And when we left off last time, remember, Abram had built an altar. He had come into this pagan land of the Canaanites, and no one worshiped God. They all worshiped the moon or other gods. And here, right smack dab in the middle of of this land that God had promised him, Abram built an altar. It would be the equivalent of this coming Thanksgiving weekend where some of you Noel fans will journey down to Gainesville. And it's like walking into Ben Hill Griffin Stadium with your, with your FSU flag, your FSU colors, walking out into the middle of Florida field and putting your flag down. I'd love to see it. I just would love to see that, okay? We'd be praying for you. This is what Abram does in a spiritual sense. And things have ended on a high note in verse 9. But beginning here in verse 10, this story is kind of like what happens when you go to that retreat or you go to that conference or you go to that that weekend away and you're on this spiritual high. You're having a mountaintop experience. And what do we do as a part of those times? We come back with resolutions, right, and promises and commitments. And this time it's going to be better. But what happens We get back into the whoop and wharf of life and we find that our spiritual high kind of fades and faith can wane. Well, as we see in this story, Abram's faith doesn't just wane. 
folks, it virtually evaporates. Here he is promised Canaan. He's promised this land, and yet at the first moment of trouble, he is hightailing it to Egypt, Egypt of all places. God has promised him an heir, but Abram is so distrusting of that promise, he takes matters into his own hands to protect his own life, to present him, prevent himself from dying before that happens. God has promised him a, an amazing blessing and a great family. But here we see him exposing and endangering Sarai, his very own wife, while all at the same time enriching himself. Now, I have to tell you, some scholars are uncomfortable with what I just described, how I just framed this passage. You see, they're, they're, they would be more likely to say, well, this titan of the faith, Abram, this is actually, he's actually being noble and faithful here. He's preserving the line. He's fighting for survival. He's using his ingenuity to outwit Pharaoh. I don't think so. You see, I think the reason we are uncomfortable when we see this kind of duplicity in others, and by the way, we are particularly uncomfortable when we, saw, when we see this kind of duplicity in heroes of the faith. That's why John Piper has often said, if you want a spiritual hero, pick a dead one, right? They're not going to disappoint you. See, it, it, it makes us uncomfortable to see this kind of duplicity because we know it really says something about us, Right? If it can happen to them, if they can fail, if they can fall, then most certainly we can too. And so this passage is going to show us two enemies of faith. Remember last week we talked about biblical faith, saving faith. This passage is going to identify two enemies of faith for us. Yet, despite that, it's also going to show us the stunning display of God's rescuing grace. So here we go. Fear, forgetfulness, and the faithfulness of God. And that's why they send you to seminary right there, like for that kind of alliteration, right? No, forgetfulness. Here we go. Verses, this is verse 10, chapter 12. It tells us in, in the verse 9 that Abraham is living in the Negev. And if you don't know your Holy Land geography, that's the southern part of Palestine, of of Canaan. It's sort of out towards the Sinai Peninsula and the desert, but it's still in Israel proper. And it was very common at that time. Remember that even though this was a part of the Fertile Crescent, it was also very unpredictable as it relates to weather, as it relates to, to, to rain and, and it being dry and dusty and those sorts of things. And so famines happened all the time. If you read ancient works of antiquity, you will find that, that famines are a fairly common thing. And here it tells us in verse 10 that a famine indeed struck the land. And what would have been customary in those days, because we know from archaeological research and other things that this portion of Palestine was at one time a pretty heavily populated area. and most likely was during the time of Abram. And so what would happen when a famine struck the land like this, they did what any natural person would do. They left to go find food. They left to go find water. And of course, Egypt was the prime destination. It was in an amazingly fertile land. It was in a valley. There was a plentiful water supply with the Nile. 
And we realize when we get to at the end of Genesis, which will happen maybe nine or ten years from now for us, but when we get to that point, we're going to find that when a famine descends upon the known world at the time, where did everybody go? Egypt. Egypt. It's just what people did. And you can imagine Abram gets up one day, and I don't know if he's like, oh, there's a famine. I, I'm not sure how all that worked. But everybody is packing up and rolling out to Egypt, and Abram rolls right along with them. Notice Abram doesn't consult the Lord. The text is meant to show us the immediacy or the abruptness of of what Abram's doing. So Abram journeyed on. He's in the Negev. Now there was a famine. Boom. He is gone, not letting the door hit him on the backside on the way out of the promised land. Now, I don't think what Moses is describing here on the part of Abram is so much what we would call a, a naked rebellion. Like, like Abram gets up one day and is like, let me tell you, God, what I'm going to do. You promised me this land and, and I don't trust you and I'm leaving. I don't think that's how that went necessarily. See, I think at this point, Abram is just doing what comes naturally. He's just doing what's instinctual. He's doing what you would expect of any other moon-worshipping pagan who had grown up in idolatry his entire life. Abram, relatively speaking, is a fairly new Christian. And he's just going back to what he knows. He's, he's following along with what everyone else is doing. The problem is that God had promised Abram this land, not that land. And instead, Abram is leaving behind this land to go to that land post-haste. Now, there's something, I think, important spiritually we can, we can pull from this. You know, when we lose our way spiritually, church, sometimes, sometimes we know it's a result of a catastrophic, rebellious decision, just a, a, a naked rebellion, a, a getting up and saying, God, I know you're telling me to do this, but I'm going to do this instead because I'm shaking my fist in your face. Sometimes that happens. But there's other times we know it's just so much more subtle than that. It's so much more gradual. It's just a spiritual forgetfulness. You see, faith can so easily become entangled and engulfed and overwhelmed by the familiar. You see, in reality, Abram had forgotten the promises of God. And when we say he had forgotten the promises of God, what we don't mean is that if you had sat Abram down and talked to him and said, hey, what did God promise you? And what did he tell you? Abram could have undoubtedly, from an intellectual standpoint, told you all of those things. When we say that Abram forgot the promises of God, what we're saying is that his heart was no longer in tune to them. His, his soul was no longer stirred up by the reminder. So he just does what he's always done, what comes naturally. Folks, let me just say this, and this is really, really important for middle-class suburbanites, evangelicals, um, living in our affluent day and age, what comes naturally is not necessarily the same thing as faith. What is natural 
does not necessarily mean the same thing as what is faithful. So I, I would encourage you to think about an inventory of your life, do an inventory of your life, all the things that you assume, all the things that you sort of, that are sort of your MO, your, your default, you know, how you spend your money and where you go and your priorities and your time and the nature of your relationships and how you think about your life. And so often, if we're not careful, if our minds are not being renewed by the Word of God, what we realize as we take that inventory is, well, you know, Pastor Paul, I'm really not where I want to be. I've sort of drifted. You know, I'm on spiritual autopilot. I'm going to that resort where they have that lazy river. You know that resort? And you go around over and over and over again, and you don't really care where it's going or how long it takes to get there. You just know you're on that raft and you're enjoying it. And then the day is gone. See, some of us find ourselves in that place spiritually, maybe in our relationships, maybe in our marriage, maybe with our children, maybe in our communities. What we need to be reminded is what Abram needs to be reminded of here. And you've heard me say this before, but faith is not a static fixed thing. Faith is not a one-time decision, something you did back at 11 or something some of you men did at the Promise Keepers Conference 22 years ago. You know, it's, that's not the nature of faith. The nature of faith is living. It is active. It's continual. It's fluid. It's an ongoing transformation of us from who we are into the image of Christ, which means, oh, please listen, Faith must be spurred on by the renewing of our minds through the Word of God. Otherwise, we forget. Otherwise, we default. Otherwise, we go into autopilot. And we're breathing the cultural air. We're, 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 we're swimming in the secular waters. And before you know it, we're in Egypt. This is why Paul says in Romans 12, should be super familiar for most of you. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Listen to this. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Let me stop there. Every one of us in here is being transformed into something. You cannot not be transformed and whatever you're being transformed to is certainly whatever you're renewing your mind with. Okay, follow the progression there. If, 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 you're, if you're renewing your mind, for example, in a continual stream of movies or media or activity or hobby or any of the other things that God gives us as his gifts, but we turn them into idols then you're going to be transformed into those very things. That's the nature of idolatry. We become like what we worship. But see, when we renew our minds in the Word of God, we are transformed. Part of this, I'll be honest with you, for some of us, is just, before you can leave Egypt, and we're going to talk about that in a minute, you have to know you're in Egypt. That means being self-aware. 
That means having some degree of personal awareness and personal insight. It means having another perspective about yourself than your own. You've heard Paul Tripp say this many times, the most influential person in your life is who? You, right? Because you're talking to yourself all the time. If most of your conversations are one-sided in that way, you and I are in grave danger of forgetting who we are, forgetting God, forgetting the promises of God. That's why it's so important to have people in our life who hold up the word of God to us, who speak into our lives, who that we are in relationship with, that can remind us of God's promises. See, God, see, culturally, we're, we're, we're big on I am who I am. God doesn't care about that. He cares about who he wants to make you into. See, faith will involve this renewing of our minds, a transformation of our person, our outlook, our worldview. Now, forgetfulness is certainly a, what, part of what Abram is dealing with as an enemy of his faith. It's what we deal with. But that's certainly not all he's dealing with. Let's look at the second thing, and that's fear. Look at verse 10 for a second. It says that Abram decided to leave. He goes from the Negev to Egypt. Now, understand, familiarize yourself with the geography. This is not an insignificant journey. So it would be insignificant by our modern standards, by flight or by car or something like that. But on, in that day, on the back of a camel, it was not an insignificant journey. Obviously, many weeks, if not some months. Now, verse 11 is an interesting little nugget here. Let's look at verse 11. It says that Abraham decided to leave Egypt, I mean, to leave the, the Negev that travels to Egypt, not an insignificant journey, not, there's a lot of time. Who knows what Abram is thinking about that whole time, what he's, what he's renewing his mind in, what he's thinking about. But look at verse 11. It says, when he was about to enter Egypt. See, Abraham had quite a long time to think about what he was going to do when he got there. See, there there was plenty of time, wasn't there? This is a lesson. It's never too late to repent. We're going to circle back around to that. Plenty of time to think about what he was doing. But because Abram was not renewing his mind in the promises of God, he undoubtedly was what? What we do. He was ruminating. He wasn't remembering, he was ruminating. What's going to happen? What am I going to do? What scheme am I going to concoct? What lie am I going to, am I going to tell? What, what, how, how am I going to exercise my ingenuity and shrewdness to get out of this situation? Can you relate? See, Abram's forgetfulness has been transformed into fear. And that's how it always works, Right? And now in front of Abram, there, is, there are some stark choices. There are some, some clear-cut obey or disobey. But here we see that Abram concocts a scheme. And let me just kind of go over what I think is happening here. Abram recognizes that because of Sarai's beauty, she is a prime target. Now, we may say 65 years old. That doesn't comport with our cultural standards of beauty and age and how we think about those things. We're thinking about it all wrong. Number one, remember... Sarai has not even lived half our life. 
And let me just say, I see all the 65-year-old women here, and you're gorgeous. You're beautiful. Let me just say that. Sarai has not even lived half her life. She hasn't had any kids. She is undoubtedly fairer skinned than the place that she's going to. We know historically that would have made her an anomaly. That would have made her very attractive. She was different. Abram was no dummy. He knew this. And so he is shrewd. And he comes up with a pretty cool scheme. You see, at that time, if you were a father and you had a daughter and someone wanted to court your daughter, pursue her in marriage, they had to go through the father. Well, Sarai's father's not there. And so custom, law, ancient Near East basically said, if the father is not there, then then it falls to the brother to care for her. It falls to the brother to be the gatekeeper, so to speak. And Abram knows this, and he knows, well, you know, if I'm her husband, they're going to kill me and take her, But if they see me as the brother, the patriarch of the family, then they're going to have to negotiate with me. See, they're going to have to come through me. They're going to have to to butter me up. They're going to have to bring their their gifts, their offering, because they want to ingratiate themselves. And it's like, I'm looking at a lot of young men in here who are going to be dating young women soon. And dudes, just remember this. you got to bring your A game. Okay, that's all i got to say. Okay, bring your A game. They were bringing... Their A game. He knew that this was the way things were supposed to go. Now, let me just say this before we get to what happens. It is highly, highly unlikely that Abram had any real intentions of giving up Sarai. That, 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 that is not what's happening here. Undoubtedly, he's just too clever by half. He wants to buy time while at the same time currying favor enriching himself before he undoubtedly wants to make his escape. Now, you've heard the old adage, right? It's not the crime, it's the what? It's the cover-up. Every time. Because here, Abram takes what was a dangerous situation and it becomes inoperable. It becomes messy. It becomes so complex, there is no way out of it. Because, as so often happens with sin, see, when, when, we, when we delay repentance, as Abraham delays repentance, the situation just gets more complex. The situation just gets worse. Because something in verse 15 happens that Abram did not foresee. Isn't that the way it always is with sin? Look what happens. It says that the news spread to Pharaoh's house himself, the royal house, the crown. And that's a problem. Because all of a sudden, Abram has no negotiating leverage anymore. Oh, I mean, he's going to be given all sorts of gifts here, but there's a, clearly a quid pro quo coming on. And it says that Pharaoh took her into his house. What does that mean? Every ancient Israelite would have known what that meant. She was now part of Pharaoh's harem. Verse 19 leaves no doubt what was happening here. Pharaoh very clearly says, I took her as my wife. Can you imagine, men, your sin? Maybe you are, maybe you're there right there, right now, where you're, it's not just the sin, but it's the sin in response to the sin. 
You know, sin is like a disease in that. It is exponential. It is multiplied. It is, it is the longer we wait to repent, listen, the harder it's going to be. The more catastrophic it's going to be. And can you imagine, men, knowing that you're in Egypt and that your wife is now languishing in the harem of Pharaoh and all that that entails? All the while, Pharaoh is showering you with gifts. Can, can, can you see the mess that he is in? Can, can you see the hopelessness of the situation? On one hand, he's being enriched. I mean, when, it look, when you list all of these male servants, female servants, female donkeys, camels, some of these things were rarities even in that time. They were, they were, these were untold treasures. And here Abram knows, I've got a settled deal. I'm going to take all this back and go to Canaan. My future is set. But all the while, at the price of his wife. You know, when we think about this idea that it's never too late to repent, Abram, by the way, learns this the hard way. I believe that this episode echoes and resounds in his life for the rest of his life. And and Kent Hughes pointed this out in his commentary, and this is really good. Do you realize that Hagar, and we'll get to her four or five years from now, whenever that is, when we get to Hagar, and Sarai makes Abram sleep with her, that Hagar was undoubtedly one of these Egyptian servant girls from Pharaoh's house. It tells us she's an Egyptian servant. Where did she come from? Undoubtedly here. We're going to get to this next week, but Abram has a big throwdown with Lot in chapter 13. And what's the problem? Abram's got too much stuff. And they have to split ways. And and Lot ends up going to Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's a whole other story we'll get to. Because I really even think, I don't think this is reading too much into the text. I think this really sowed, can you imagine, women? You know, you're in bed late at night and your husband's like, y'all both hear the noise, it's undoubtedly true, someone's breaking into the house, and he's like, honey, go take a look at that, I'm going back to sleep, right? Can you imagine just on that level what sort of distrust that would breed? And now compare it to this. No wonder Sarai didn't trust Abram right? No one, remember, God appeared to Abram, not Sarai, initially, initially, and said, I'm going to give you an heir. She didn't believe him. She was still barren. And so what does she do? Sends him into Hagar. See, this is a mess with consequences unfolding on top of consequences. And it's a situation that that Abram is utterly incapable of fixing. Now, let me stop there. Anybody find themselves in Egypt right now? See, there's some of you who are in Egypt and you don't know it. But there's some of you in Egypt, there's some of us in Egypt, and you know darn well you're in Egypt. And you know how you got there, and you know the choices that were made, and you're looking up like Abram at this point is looking up and saying, God, I can't fix this. God, I am in a mess. If you could all, 
at all relate to that, then you're ready to hear verse 17. Because the point of this story is not Abram's lack of faith. The point of this story is the faithfulness of God. Look at verse 17. But the Lord. You know, some of the the best words in the Bible are just those kind of words, those short little phrases. Therefore, and in view of, yet. And here we have another one. But the Lord, it's to signal to us that all hope is lost. Can you imagine? Unless God intervenes, unless he shows himself faithful. Folks, this is a picture of salvation. This is a picture of divine, sovereign grace. Because look what happens. It says that God brings a series or brings a plague on Pharaoh's house. Abram couldn't have done that. Abram could not have conjured that up. And we don't know how, we don't know the details of the story, but somehow they knew this was because of Sarai, probably because everyone else was hit with the plague and she wasn't. There were some commentators, by the way, who believe these diseases were sexual in nature. We don't know. But what we do know is that it was plainly obvious to pagan Pharaoh what was going on. And here's what the Hebrew literally says, okay? There's four words, just four words. Here, wife, take, go. That's what he says. Like, it's that abrupt. It is that clear. This is deportation. This is expulsion. This is a public humiliation of Abram. We know it was because he doesn't say anything. He just puts his tail between his legs and he slinks back off to the land where there is undoubtedly still a famine going on. He is ceremoniously escorted out of Egypt. I wonder if at that moment Abram would have recognized this for what it was. You know what this was? Church, this is the sovereign grace of God. See, God's grace oftentimes comes in forms that are disguised and not so easily discerned. Let me ask you this. Where in your life does it feel like God is against you? Like, God, you just haven't shown up in this way. God, there's this this long-standing problem. God, I keep hearing your no. I keep hearing your no about this job. I keep hearing your no about this situation, this relationship. But you know what renewing our mind does? It gives us eyes of faith through the word of God. Oh, it's not just a no. Or maybe it's the yes that you didn't want to hear. But in fact, this is really the grace of God. See, God does something for Abram that he clearly could not do for himself. See, Abram, this is interesting. When we say that God pulled Abram out of Egypt kicking and screaming, you realize that is exactly what happened. Kicking and screaming. He had no choice. He had no hope. Because that's a picture of salvation. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. His sovereign, divine rescue of grace reached down into our hearts and has done something for us that we cannot do for ourselves.
Guys, it's a reminder if you find yourself in Egypt today, and if you haven't, you will. There's a little bit of hope, right? If you haven't, you will. That he is faithful even when we are unfaithful. And God is orchestrating, working, weaving together in ways that we cannot even see everything that's happening in our lives for his divine, sovereign purposes. So one last thing about this text. As you're reading it, you might be thinking, well, this whole story sounds kind of familiar. Haven't I heard this story before? Something about Egypt and a pharaoh and plagues and the Red Sea? Of course you have. It's the Exodus. Remember the context here. Moses is writing to the Israelites who have just left Egypt, who are wandering around in the wilderness, who've been delivered out of Pharaoh's hand by plagues. But what are the Israelites wanting to do? They're wanting to what? Go back to Egypt. See, because Egypt, it's better to be a slave and to be fed than to be out here having to trust God and wandering around in the wilderness. And so God gives them, I'm sure there's a million stories about Abram, but God gives this one. See, they too, just like Abram, have been driven to Egypt by a famine. They too had been in a heap of trouble, these Israelites. And just like Abram, they had to be delivered by a series of divine plagues, God's grace. They too, just like Abram, had been expelled from the land. And just like Abram, they wanted to hang out in Egypt. And this is a reminder, this story, that Egypt is not where the promises of God are. No matter how attractive and lush and beautiful and plentiful it may be, don't go back to Egypt. Trust God. See, here we see not just Abram's physical rescue, because I I don't know the nature of your journeying through Egypt at this point in your life. I don't know what rescue, spiritual rescue means for you. That's why we have to be in community and relationships and pray and talk and unpack our stories with each other. But what we do know is that what this is really about is the preservation of the line of Abram. Because from Abram's line comes the chosen Messiah, through whom grace will be given to all who receive it. And we're reminded of Jesus. See, Jesus, isn't this interesting? Jesus was called down from the promised land to to go to where? Egypt. Jesus was called out of Egypt to go back to the promised land to be the Messiah for his people, to save his people from their sins. But he was going back to a people who would receive him not. He was going back to a people who would put him on the cross, which he willingly went to so that we could be right here, right now, today, 2,000 years later, sons of Abraham, the father of our faith. You see, Jesus is the better Abraham. He was faithful. He was willingly gone to the cross in front of us 
He went to the cross so that we could be reconciled and to become members of God's family. Jesus willingly came up out of Egypt to go to the cross for us so that we would understand that God's grace is greater than all our sins, all of them. If you're feeling hopeless today, if you're feeling discouraged, if you're feeling like I've found myself in Egypt, just no, a couple things. Number one, it's never too late to repent, ever. Doesn't mean there's not consequences. Doesn't mean there's, there's not complexities to work through. Doesn't mean there's not a cost. But it's never too late to repent. Number two, the longer you wait to repent, the harder it will be. And how much easier isn't it for us when we discipline ourselves under the Holy Spirit than when God has to dig down and do it for us? That could be a painful process. But number four, even when God does it, it's for our good. It's for our glory. All possible through his son, Jesus Christ, who he invites us to embrace today. Let's pray.